Amen. All right, well, we're there in Matthew chapter number 5. And of course, this is the great uh, chapter, the first chapter in the Sermon on the Mount that the Lord Jesus Christ taught. And uh, this morning we are beginning a series on the uh, subject of Shina's lights. And of course, in this Matthew 5, we find Jesus speaking about this subject. And before we uh, delve into it, I'd like you to go with me, if you would, to the book of John, John chapter number 8, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter number 8, and look at verse number 12, John chapter 8 and verse 12, and let's, I'd like to begin this morning by just kind of laying a foundation in regards to this idea of light in the Bible and this uh, metaphor that Jesus used for Christianity, and I'd like to begin by saying that Jesus is the light of the world. The Bible teaches that, and Jesus said that, John chapter 8 and verse 12 The Bible says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. I am the light of the world, is what Jesus said. Turn over a couple of pages to John chapter 12, and look at verse number 46. John chapter 12, and verse 46. The Bible says this, I am come a light into the world. That whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. He says, I am come a light into the world. And Jesus, of course, is the light. And we're going to talk about that at some point in the series, um, especially as we get closer to Christmas. But I want you to notice that Jesus said that he was the light of the world as long as he was in the world. You're there in John 12. Flip back, if you would, to John chapter 9 and look at verse 5. John chapter 9 and verse 5. And notice what Jesus said, and we're just kind of laying a foundation here. John chapter 9 and verse 5, the Bible says this, As long as I am in the world, this is Jesus speaking, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So notice he says, I am the light of the world. He says, I am come a light into the world. And there's lots that we could say, and we're going to spend several weeks looking at this in Scripture. The Bible says a lot about the light of the world, and how darkness comprehendeth it not, and how the world lies in darkness. But Jesus said this, he said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, obviously, we know that Jesus ascended up to heaven, and he is no longer in the world. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Then he says this, and we can make our way back to the book of Matthew, if you would, Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 14. He said this in Matthew five fourteen, famous words, you know them. He says, ye are the light of the world. And the point that I want to make uh, just as we begin the sermon and the series this morning is this, that Jesus is the light of the world, but when he left, he left us as the light of the world. He said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am come as a light into the world. He said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But then he looked at his disciples and he said, ye, and he wasn't just talking to the 12, he's talking to all disciples who would ever live. He said, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it on a bushel. And there's lots that we could say there, and and I wish I could delve into all of that this morning, and we'll have to do it over the next several weeks, because there's lots that can be said. But I want you to notice this, because there's something we hear a lot of Christians, you know, especially the liberals today. You hear them talk about, we are, you know, light, salt and light, salt and light. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, the Bible teaches that. But we hear that a lot, and it just kind of becomes this phrase, you know, we're the light of the world. But what exactly does that mean? How is it exactly that you and I, because we're commanded 
to let your light so shine before men, right? We're commanded. We teach it. Um, we teach our kids. Uh, we sing this with our kids at home. And when I was growing up, we were singing this in, in church. Uh, the little song, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Uh, you know, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. And we sing those songs and we teach those things. But what does that exactly mean? What does it mean to let your light so shine? I want you to notice there, verse 16. Notice what Jesus said. In verse 14, he said, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Verse 15, he said, Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, but it giveth light unto all that are in the house. And then in verse 16, he says this, let your light so shine before men. And, you, you, and we might ask, well, what does that mean, Jesus? What do you mean by that? And here's what he would say. He says that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. See, the way that we shine our light, the way that we are light, is by shining our light, by allowing people, is by doing good works and by allowing our good works to testify of who we are and who we follow. Now, I'd like you to go with me, if you would, to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 3. Towards the end of the New Testament, you've got all the T books. They're all clustered together. 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, Titus chapter 3. And uh, look at verse 5, Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. And let me just say this. We, of course, are not saved by our works. Titus 3, 5, while you turn there, I'll, I'll read to you or quote to you the famous verses in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We're not saved by works. Are you there in Titus chapter 3? Look at verse 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So the Bible is clear that we're not saved by works. We are saved by the grace of God and we are saved by the mercy of God. It is a gift that we have, which is salvation. We are not saved by works. But uh, sometimes I think we uh, emphasize that so much as we should when preaching the gospel that we forget the idea that, yes, we are not saved by works. But let me say this this morning. We are saved to work. Amen. God does want us to work for him to work on his behalf. Are you there in Titus? Look at chapter 2 and verse 7. Notice what the Bible says, Titus chapter 2 and verse 7. The Bible says this, and all things, in all things, excuse me, notice what he says, showing thyself a pattern of good works. He says, look, your life should be a pattern. He says, in all things, your life should be a pattern of good works. Here's what that means. It means that if somebody, a new believer maybe, wanted to get an idea of, well, what does it mean to live a life of good works, that they should be able to look at you and look at me and look at what we do every day and say, well, there's our pattern. Well, that's what we should do. That's what we should follow. He says, in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. Look at verse 14, same chapter. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. Notice what the Bible says. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. Notice these words, zealous of good works. Now, we're not saved by works. 
but we're saved to work. And in fact, the Bible says that God wants to uh, save us, that He might redeem us from all iniquity, not of works, but then He wants to do the work of sanctification and purify unto Himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. We should have zeal for doing good works. We should show ourselves a pattern of good works. Look at Titus chapter 3 and verse number 8. Titus chapter 3 and verse 8. Notice what the Bible says. This is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God, notice these words, might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto them. The Bible says that you and I should be careful to maintain Good works. The Bible says we should be a peculiar people, zealous of good works. The Bible says that we should, in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. So we're not saved by works. We understand that. But we are saved to work. God does want us to work uh, once we are saved for his glory. And then Jesus would say, he would say, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. So the question is this, and this is what we'll spend the entire sermon this morning talking about is, what are these good works? What are these good works that will cause men to glorify our Father in heaven when they behold our good works? Now, I'd like you to keep your place right there in Titus. We're going to come back to it later on in the sermon, but go with me to the book of 1 Peter, if you would. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, Peter. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at what the Bible teaches. We're not going to look at everything because we don't have time to do it. But we're going to look at several things the Bible tells us. What is it that the Bible calls good works in regards to believers? What is it that God wants us to do that he would say these are good works? Because these are the things that we're supposed to do. This is the testimony that you and I are supposed to have in order to let our light so shine before men. And then I want to highlight those for you uh, from different characters in the Bible. And we won't have the time to do uh, all of it, but let me just say this. You know, uh, you can always look at what I refer to as the captive heroes in the Bible, the heroes of the captivity or that were in captivity. And I'm talking, of course, about Joseph and Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, of Mordecai and of Esther. And when you look at these characters in the Bible, you'll find a similarity. First of all, they were all uh, in captivity, of course. They were all living in a culture that was separate from that of God's people. They were in captivity in Egypt or Babylon or Medo-Persia or whatever it might be. And all of these individuals, of course, we know their names because they did great things for God. But what's interesting is that as you study these characters out in the Bible, you'll find that in one way or another, we are always told that they found favor that they were giving a favor with men, and they all were promoted, and they all uh, 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 did certain things. And what I would say to you this morning is that they all did a very good job as shine, of shining as lights, of letting their light so shine before men, that men would look at them, and even those who hated them would have to look at them and glorify their Father which was in heaven. As a result... Of their works. And you and I have the same opportunity. We are in captivity. We are in a culture that is not a Christian culture. And you and I get to shine our light 
in this world. So what does that mean to shine our light? What does it mean? How do we let our light so shine before men? What are these works? And I'll give you three of them this morning. I encourage you to write these down on the back of your course of the week. There's a place for you to take some notes and you can jot these thoughts down. Number one, we ought to, you ought to let your light so shine by walking honestly. You ought to let your light so shine by walking honestly. Now, what does that mean? If you're there in First Peter chapter 2, and look at verse number 11. I want you to notice what Peter says. And of course, Peter is speaking to believers here in the first century under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. as a scripture, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11. Notice what he says. He says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. And I love the fact that he says that because he says, let me remind you that this world is not your home. You are a foreigner here. You are just on a journey here. He says, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Then he says these words, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against your soul. So what, what does it mean to walk honestly? Because notice verse 12, he says, having your conversation. Now the word conversation is an older word, uh, uh, the way that it's used in our King James Bible, uh, uh, a word with an older definition that means lifestyle, the way you live your life. You could say it's your testimony, what people know about you. He says, having your conversation, he says this, honest among the Gentiles. The word honest means sincere, authentic, free of deceit, not hypocritical. He says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, and of course, the world always speaks against Christianity as evildoers, but especially uh, Peter speaking to the first century believers. You know, in the first century, they would look at these believers and they would speak evil against them. He said they speak uh, against you as evildoers. They may, notice, by your good works which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. That sounds a lot like, let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Peter said, you need to have your conversation honest among the Gentiles. He says, even when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. So he says, you need to live a life that is Honest. You need to have your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Now, what does that mean? And, and I want to show you here in this passage that he kind of explains this to us. But, you know, the first obvious thing is that we should live honestly. We should live a life of truth. That we should be people of truth. The word honest means sincere, authentic, free of deceit. Something that... My wife and I have done in ministry, and honestly, it's my wife's done, and she's kind of taught me these things, but is we, we've been trained in, in statement analysis, and it helps you in ministry when you have to sometimes judge between situations, and statement analysis, and I shouldn't talk a lot about it. My wife doesn't like when I talk about it. She says, you shouldn't tell people we've been trained in statement analysis, and I said, well, if they know, maybe they'll stop lying to us, you know? <laughs> But the whole point of statement analysis is that you analyze your statements for deception. It's a biblical principle. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. And what you find is that most people don't just flat out lie to you, but what they do is they just don't tell you the full truth. They hide something. They say one thing, but they leave out. And what, and what statement analysis does is it just helps you to kind of 
fill in those gaps. And once you see it, it's really hard to unsee it. I mean, it's really obvious when someone's just not telling you the truth, not telling you the whole story. They tell you one thing, but what they really mean, you know, and oftentimes when somebody tells you something just for no reason, why well, didn't ask you that? You know, they're trying to get your attention over here so you don't pay attention on this end. You know, as Christians, you say, oh, Pastor, I don't know, I'm never going to talk to your wife. She's always going to be uh, analyzing me. Well, you know, that's not true, but let me just say this. Why are you lying so much? What are you so worried about? You say, well, I, you know, I don't want to be uh, analyzed. Okay, well, here's a great, here's a great uh, rule of thumb. Quit lying. <laughs> Quit being so deceptive. Just tell the truth. Just just say, hey, here's what's going on. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what, you know, don't be deceptive. He says, look, you need to have your conversation honest among the Gentiles. And I'll bring this up to say this. It's amazing to me how once, because once you see it, it's hard to unsee it, how often people are deceptive with their words. Don't want to actually tell you what they're doing, where they're going, what their intentions are. They tell you one thing, and sometimes you just, you know, you want to tell people, like, you think I'm an idiot? I mean, obviously, I know you're bringing this up because you don't want me to ask about this. And sometimes I ask about it anyway, just to throw them off. But in our lives, we ought to live honestly. One way that you can let your light so shine is by having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Now, what exactly does that mean? It means a couple of things. Number one, of course, we should live honest lives, but... Here, in the context, he says, look, you do that by abstaining from sin. I mean, look at verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against your soul. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, whereas they speak evil, they speak against you as evildoers. Look at verse 16. As free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, But as servants of God, he says this. He says, look, yes, I understand. Here's what Peter would say. Peter would say, I understand that you are free. You're free in Christ. You're not saved by works. There's nothing you have to do to be saved or stay saved. But he says, don't use that liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. Don't live your life in such a way that just because you don't have to do anything to be saved doesn't mean you shouldn't be trying to do something because you're saved. He says, look, you got to live Honestly, among the world, you ought to abstain from sin. He says, you should live a life that is sincere and authentic and free of deceit. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, don't, don't, don't be a hypocrite. Now, the number one, you know, reason often that we hear from the world as to why they don't want to go to church is because the church is filled with hypocrites. And I would have to agree with them. They're right. We analyze their statements. <laughs> They're filled. The church is filled with, with hypocrites, and often we use those excuses. You know, somebody says to me, I don't know a church because it's filled with hypocrites. I say, well, how do you do your grocery shopping? You, you never go to Target? I shop on Amazon. Well, I'm sure Amazon's ran by a bunch of hypocrites. You know, you must never go to the dentist. You must never go to the doctor. You must never go anywhere. Let me, let me break it to you. Everywhere you go, if there's a human being there, there's going to be hypocrites. But you know, the idea is this, that we should not. David was told when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed Uriah the Hittite, he was told, you have given great occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. Why? 
because he failed to walk honestly among the Gentiles. See, the way that we shine our light, let your light so shine before men, is by walking honestly, abstaining from sin. But there's more to that. Look at verse uh, 13, same chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Not only should we abstain from sin, but we should also submit to our authority. 1 Peter 2.13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be of the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well, there's our words, well-doing, good works, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So he says, look, here's how you walk honestly before men. You abstain from sin and you submit to authority. Now, it's interesting that it's placed in that order, and I'm not going to re-preach sermons I've already preached, but of course, we are to submit to authority until authority asks us to sin. When authority asks us to sin, then we obey God rather than men. But here's what he says. He says, look, you want to have an honest testimony? You want to have a testimony that shines some light among the Gentiles in your world? You want to have a testimony among your co-workers and your neighbors and, 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 and your family? You want to shine your light? He says, you must walk honestly before men. He says you must live a life that is abstaining from sin and submitting to authority. And of course, that authority begins with God. Here's what he's saying. He said, you're never going to shine as light to a bunch of drunken family members when you're getting drunk with them. That's not shining as light. He says, you need to live a life that is blameless. None of us will ever be perfect. None of us will ever be without sin. But you should live a life that is blameless. You should live a life that people would say, you know what? That guy's a little crazy. That church he goes to is a little crazy. But I'll tell you something, he's the real deal. A little crazy, I think. I think it might be a cult. Whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. You know Christians should never show up late to work? I mean, I, I, obviously I understand sometimes you, you get a flat tire, things happen, I understand that. But you shouldn't be the guy who's just always showing up late. Always taking a longer lunch. Always lying to the boss about what you're doing. I mean, the world's going to look at that and say, that guy's a hypocrite. Look at him. Supposedly he's a Christian. You know what would be the greatest testimony that a believer could have in the workplace? The greatest testimony that a believer could have in the workplace would be this. For the boss to say, that guy's odd. That guy's weird. I think he's in a cult. I don't really try, you know, I don't know what that whole Christianity thing's about. But let me tell you something. I will hire him and I will hire all of his friends because they're the best workers we've got. He never steals from me. He never lies to me. He's always on time. He's always respectful. Here's what he's saying. Here's what Peter's saying. Shine your light by walking honestly. Amen. Live a life that is authentic, that is sincere, that is free of deceit, that is free of lying. He says, look, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. And then we would say, well, what does that mean exactly? And Peter would say, hey, they speak against you as evildoers that they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God. Let your light so shine by walking honestly, by abstaining from sin, by submitting to authority, by living a life free of hypocrisy. Now keep your place there in Titus. We're going to come back towards that part of the Bible. But go with me to the book of Daniel because 
For every one of these points, I want to give you kind of a biblical wow example of this. A biblical example of someone who let their light so shine and the world took notice and said, wow, I don't believe them. I don't agree with them. I don't like what they say. I don't like anything about what they're doing. But look at that person. There is somebody who's walking honestly before men. Daniel chapter 6. If you would, Daniel. Towards the end of the Old Testament, you've got the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel chapter 6. Now, obviously, none of us are perfect. When we say you got to live your life in a way that is blameless, it doesn't mean that you're without sin. But it means that you have such a testimony. It means that you have such a testimony. People would say, you know what? The guy's not perfect, but he's sincere. She's not perfect, but they're, they're authentic. I don't agree with what they believe, but I'll tell you this. They believe it. Daniel chapter 6. Here's one of our captive heroes. Notice what his enemies said about him. Daniel chapter 6, verse 4. Then the presidents and princes. These are not his friends. These are people that don't like Daniel. Daniel's getting a little too much favor, a little too much promotion. And they're envious and they want to bring him down. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. That's his submission to authority. They said, hey, let's try to find something that Daniel is doing wrong. I mean, think about this. What if your in-laws, what if your neighbors, what if your co-workers said, I want to bring these people down. Let me bring these people down. What if they started following you around? They said, let's just find something they're doing wrong. That's what they did. They sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. Here's let your light so shine before men. But they could find none occasion nor fault for as much as he was faithful. I mean, what if your co-worker said, I'm just going to watch that guy. I'm going to document how many times he's late, how many times he leaves early, how many times he takes a longer lunch break, how many times he steals a stapler, how many, you know, I'm just going to document everything they do wrong. And they can find none occasion nor fault for as much as he was faithful. Neither was there any error or fault found in him. Here's the beautiful part of Daniel's testimony, verse 5. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. They said, we can't find him breaking any of our laws, so we're just going to have to make laws against the God that he serves, because those laws he'll break. I mean, think, think about it. What a testimony would it be if at your job, they couldn't find anything to get you fired over, so they said, you know what, let's just make Sunday working mandatory. And then they'll, then they'll not show up. I mean, that's the kind of testimony he had. And by the way, you say, well, I don't know about all this. Let me just say this about Daniel. Daniel served under four kings, Nebuchadnezzar, Belteshazzar, Darius, Cyrus, and Daniel rose in promotion. Daniel had favor with all those kings. Daniel impacted those kings and those kingdoms for the glory of God. I mean, men and women for thousands of years would look at Daniel as an example of a great believer of God. And part of it had to do with the fact that he walked honestly among Gentiles. That even his enemies would say, I don't like him, but I'll tell you, he's good. 
He has good works, and those good works glorify His Father which is in heaven. Go to the book of Acts, if you would. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. We're answering this question, how do we shine as lights? How do we let our light so shine before men? What does that actually look like? And Jesus would say, well, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So then we've got to ask the question, well, what are the good works? And we saw, number one, to let your light so shine, we must do that by walking honestly. Let me give you a second way we allow our good works to shine. Not only must we walk honestly, but number two, if you're writing these things down, let your light so shine by loving sacrificially. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 36, we have an example of a young lady who had a good testimony. Notice what the Bible says. Acts chapter 9, verse 36. Now, there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. Now, if I had a choice, I'd probably go by Tabitha. Notice what the Bible says, this woman, this woman was full of good works. She was full of good works. She died and people said, man, she she did so many good works. What were her good works? Notice, an alms deeds, that's like charitable giving, giving, which she did. What did she do exactly? Because she died and Peter's about to resurrect her and we're not going to get into all that. I just want you to see her testimony. Look at verse 39. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats, notice, showing the coats and the garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. So we're told in verse 36 that she was full of good works. What were those good works? Alms deeds. She was doing charitable giving, but she just wasn't giving money uh, which is nothing wrong with that, obviously, but this was a young lady. She probably didn't have a lot of money. So what did she do? She used her gifts and her talents, and when, when she died, they were showing Peter all the coats and garments which Dorcas had made. So obviously, she's uh, making these coats. She's sewing these coats and these garments. She's uh, maybe knitting these, these, these coats, and she's giving them away to people who have need. She's loving sacrificially. Let me give you another example. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you kept your place in Titus, going backwards from Titus, you have Titus, 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Look at verse 9. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 9. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 9. This is a, the context of these verses about a widow. I want you to understand that. But I want you to see what is said about this widow. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 9. Notice what the Bible says. Let not a widow be taken into the number under threescore years old, having been the wife of one man. And I don't have time to develop this. We, one of these days I'll preach through the book of Titus. We'll, we'll explain it. But the, what the Bible is teaching here is that there are some instances where a church would support a widow financially, but there are some strict guidelines as to when that would happen. First of all, she needs to be over 60 years old. He says, let let not a widow be taken into the number under three score years old. If she's less than 60 years old, then she needs to get married. Uh, That's what the Bible says. She also needs to be the wife of one man, so not have been uh, divorced. And she also needs to not have... Uh, grandchildren or children or nieces or nephews that could take care of her. And, and all of that's it's in here. You can study that out. I'm just giving you that for context. Look at verse 10. Here's the other. So if she meets all those qualifications, then there's one more qualification. She must have lived her life, notice verse 10, well reported of for good works. 
She needs to have a testimony like Dorcas of good works, like Tabitha of good works. And you we ask, well, what does that mean? Now, this is about a widow, but we're about to get a list here of what good works looks like. Notice what it says, if she have brought up children. You know, bringing up your children for the glory of God, that's a good work. That's a good work that we should all be trying to achieve as parents. If she have large strangers, uh, you know, people come in and out of town sometimes and, and we uh, take care of them and we put them up in a house or give them somewhere to lodge, that's something that, that's a good work. If she have large strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, referring to the fact that she served the saints, she's uh, ministered unto the saints. If she have relieved the afflicted, that's what Dorcas was doing, right? She was making coats for people who didn't have them. If she have relieved the afflicted, notice these words, if she have diligently followed every good work. See, a good work is not only when we walk honestly among the Gentiles, but a work, good work is also when we love sacrificially. And it's not just enough to love, but it's a love that actually does something. It's like 1 Corinthians 13, where we actually have charity, we actually get to work, we actually help people, we love people by doing something for them. That's a good work. This is broken down in James chapter 2. I won't take the time to take you there, but in James chapter 2, often people try to take those verses out of context and try to teach a work salvation. But the Bible says, look, your faith without works is dead. That doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. You can have faith without works. Paul said that you can have faith without works and, 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 and be saved. We understand that. But what he says is this. Faith without works is unprofitable. It doesn't profit anybody. And he even gives this example. He says, if somebody says to you that they're cold and you say, God bless you, did you do anything for them? See, Tabitha didn't say, God bless you. Somebody said, I'm cold. She said, let me make you a coat. That's loving sacrificially. And here's, here, here we're told that a widow, if she's well reported up for good works, will know that she has good works if she have brought up children, if she have lost strangers, if she have washed the saints' feet, if she have relieved the afflicted, if she have diligently followed every good work. Let me give you kind of a wow example in the Bible of this. Go to the book of Luke, if you would. Luke chapter 10 in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Luke chapter 10. And this is, of course, an example from a parable, but it's a great example. And it is that of the good Samaritan. Samaritan. The good Samaritan was kind of a wow, let your light so shine before men example. What did he do? He loved sacrificially. He served others. Luke chapter 10, while you turn there, I'll quote to you Philippians 2, 3, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, the Bible says, let each esteem other better than themselves. See, when you and I actually esteem other people better than ourselves, it means that we say, you know what? I'm serving for your benefit. I'm loving you for your benefit. I want you to succeed in life. God says, hey, the world will take a look at that and say, wow. I don't want to go to the church. I don't want, I don't, I don't, I don't want to believe what they believe. That's what the world might say. I don't want to go to their church, but I want to be their neighbor. I want to be their friend. Luke chapter 10, look at verse 30. And Jesus answering said, and Jesus answering said, a certain man, a certain man. Now Jesus is speaking to a Jewish, uh, Jewish uh, uh, crowd here. 
And a Jew, the Jewish crowd does the same thing every other sort of crowd does. Whenever someone begins to tell a story, they just assume that the person in the story is like them. So he says a certain man, and they're thinking a certain Jewish man, because they're Jewish. That's why white people think Jesus was white. That's why black people think Jesus was black. That's why brown people think Jesus was brown. Because we all just assume that whatever, who's ever in the story is going to be like us. Now notice verse 30. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. Now you're thinking, great, here comes a priest. Here comes a spiritual leader. This person is, is made for the job. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. A Levite would be like an assistant pastor, like a deacon, an associate, someone who is supposed to help the priest. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan came where he was and when he saw him. Now, it's important that it's a Samaritan. Because Jesus is speaking to a Jewish crowd here, and he speaks about a Samaritan who's a half-Gentile, half-Jew, despised by the Jews, but a sort of Samaritan, and by the way, Jesus is telling a story here. He could have made the, the, the star anything. He chose, this, he chose to make him a Samaritan on purpose. He says, but a sort of Samaritan came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Loved him. And went to him. By the way, if, if you got a hold of those four words, went to him, that would get you out soul winning. Notice he had compassion on him. He had compassion on him. So he waited until he showed up to church on Sunday morning so he could minister to him. Is that what it says? He had compassion on him and went to him. Action. And bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou? I love Jesus. When he t- one of these days, we need to just do a story, a whole series on, on the, the parables of Christ and, and the teachings of Christ because he, he tells these stories. He, he gets you all wrapped up in these stories and he, he kind of goes in for the knockout blow with this applicable question. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him? Because they asked him a question. Because he said, to love thy neighbor with all thy heart. He says, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might, and to love thy neighbor as thyself. And then they come back with their little snotty attitude and say, well, who's our neighbor? So then he tells this whole story and he says, well, who do you think was his neighbor? Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, he that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus, and, and, and he said, he that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him. Notice what he says. Go and do thou likewise. How do we let our light so shine before men? By walking honestly. How do we let our light so shine before men? By loving sacrificially. I read one time of a study that was done at a seminary. A seminary is a supposed school where people go to get trained for the ministry and 
become pastors or whatnot. And they had a class with 100 seminary students in it. And this was a study that was put on. They, 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 they wanted to look at some human responses. They had 100 students in the seminary class, and they had set up a special speaker who was supposed to come, and renowned speaker, I remember who it was, but a special speaker was supposed to come and teach a lesson on, on the parable of the Good Samaritan. And they knew that these seminary students would be coming from a certain location because it was a special event, so they were all going to be at this certain location. In order to get to where the speaker was, they would have to go through this uh, 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 little park area on their campus that had uh, a cemented walkway. And they purposely put a man lying across the walkway, laying down, you know, unconscious. This was a study they were doing. And they purposely allowed, uh, uh, caused 100 seminary students to be let out late of their previous event so that they would all be rushing to get to this special event with the special speaker about the Good Samaritan. And 97 of the students passed over him, passed around him, ran around him in order to get to the special lesson on the Good Samaritan. While only three stopped to ask if he was okay. We must let our light so shine before men. By doing good works. How do we do that? Well, we begin by walking honestly. We begin by living a life that is free of deceit. That is sincere and authentic. That our enemies would look at us and say, you know what, I don't like them. I don't like what they believe. I don't like what they stand. But I'll tell you this, they're real. There's no hypocrisy in them. We let our light so shine before men by loving sacrificially. By taking the time to love those. And look, a Samaritan would have every reason to not stop and help a Jew. But we must love those, even those that are unlovable. Number three. Go back to 1 Timothy, if you would. From 1 Timothy, I'd like you to go to 1 Peter, if you're able to. 1 Second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. I said, number one, let your light so shine by walking honestly. Number two, let your light so shine by loving sacrificially. Here's point number three. We have to let our light so shine by suffering patiently. First Peter chapter 2 and verse number 19. I want you to notice what Peter says. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 19. For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God Endure grief. Suffering, here's the key word, wrongfully. Here's what Peter would say. Peter Peter would say, you want to be thanked by God? He said, "Here's here's something that's thankworthy. When you suffer wrongfully for the cause of Christ. When people attack you, when people malign you, when people uh, try to hurt you, And you've done nothing wrong. You're innocent. He says, This is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory, right? Because we're supposed to shine that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. He says, For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your fault, ye shall take it patiently? Now look, I believe that whenever we are, uh, you know, uh, 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 reaping what we've sown, if we're being punished because of something we did, we should take it patiently. We should say, yeah, you know, 
I'm in prison because I robbed that liquor store. We should take it patiently. But, but here's, what, here's what, what Peter says. He says, what glory is it? He says, who really gets the glory if when you get a spanking, you take it patiently? He says, but if when ye do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently. He says, this is acceptable with God. He says, this is what impresses God and what impresses people around us. When we suffer wrongfully, patiently. When we suffer patiently, go to 1 Peter chapter 4. You're there in chapter 2. Flip over chapter 4. Look at verse 14. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 14. Notice what the Bible says. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. Look, if the people you work with hate you because you don't drink and you don't smoke and you go to church, that's great. If they hate you because you're lazy, that's not a good testimony. If they hate you because, you know, you steal from them and you borrow money and you never return it, that's not good. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of, notice the words, glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of, but on your part, he is glorified. How do we let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven? It is when we suffer patiently. And it only works when we suffer wrongfully. Sometimes I say this to people and I don't know that they really understand it. Maybe I shouldn't say it. Maybe it's not sensitive. But usually, usually, when we suffer wrongfully, that's when we get real, you know, just get our chest out and filled with pride, right? Because when we get in trouble for something we know we did, we're just kind of like, okay, you know, let's drop it. Let's not talk about it anymore. Okay, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. But when your parents yell at you and you didn't do it, when your wife accused you and you didn't do it, when your husband said you did this and you didn't do it, that's when we're like, no, we're going to talk about this for five hours. You always argue. But listen to me, listen to me. When you're, when you're suffering wrongfully, you have a great opportunity right there to suffer patiently. Amen. To not let your flesh in the way. God has given you an opportunity. And by the way, I would say this. Those opportunities are few and far between because usually when you and I are suffering, if we were honest, we're suffering because of our own stupidity. It's rare. It's rare that you and I get in trouble and we were innocent. So instead of wasting those opportunities with our own pride, why don't we say, hey, this is a great opportunity to let our light so shine before men. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Luke verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. You know the, the wow moment in your life? might be when you suffer patiently, when you suffer wrongfully, patiently. Go to Genesis, if you would, first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 50. The obvious example here would be Job, of course. And I'm preaching a whole series through the book of Job, so I'm not going to take the time to 
give you that example, but I'll give you another wow example. And it is, of course, one of our captive heroes, Joseph. Genesis chapter 5. Excuse me, Genesis chapter 50, verse 18. Genesis chapter 50, verse 18. Genesis 50, 18, the Bible says this, and his brethren. Now remember, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brethren. Mistreated by his brethren, sold into slavery by his brethren. They stole his childhood. They stole his family. They lied about him, pretended he was dead. They, they pretended he was dead so that he would be forgotten. There was no hope of anybody looking for him. His dad thought he was dead. As a result, he gets sold into slavery. As a result, he gets thrown into prison. Much, much heartache came to Joseph. One of the greatest characters in the Bible. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face. Because remember, these captive heroes, they were always showed, they always had favor, they always prospered. The, 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 the tables have turned here. Joseph is now the second most powerful man in the world. I mean, what would you and I do if we had this much power? over someone that had hurt us this much. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. They're scared. Their dad just died. And they're thinking, Okay, now that dad's dead, now Joseph's definitely going to get his revenge against us. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me. But God meant it unto good. He said, I, I, you try to hurt me, but he said, you know, you know what I know? Here's what I've learned. That the entire time that you were working against me, God was working on the other side. You thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Now therefore fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. And you and I are talking about Joseph all these hundreds and thousands of years later because of this wow moment where we see Joseph shine his light before men. When he suffered wrongfully, patiently. And he said, you know what? Revenge is not my place. Am I in the place of God? You thought it, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. So what does it mean exactly? Go back to Matthew chapter 5, if you would. When Jesus said, verse 14, you are the light of the world. It's quite a statement. He says, the whole world lies in darkness, and you are the light. And by the way, I'll just say this, and we'll deal with this in another sermon. There is no light in this world aside from Christ. There is no light in this world aside from Christianity, which means there is no light in this world aside from you and me. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it on, uh, under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men. You say, what does that mean, Jesus? That they may see your good works 
Glorify your Father which is in heaven. What does that mean? It means that we let our light so shine by walking honestly. That means that we let our light so shine by loving sacrificially. It means that we let our light so shine by suffering patiently. I hope this morning that the little song is not just a little song we sing to our kids, but it's a way of life. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Hide it under a bushel, no, I'm going to let it shine. Hide it under a bushel, no, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Here's a question I have for you, and don't answer it out loud. Let me try to be like Jesus a little bit, give you an applicable question, and we'll finish up. Has there ever been a wow moment in your life? Has there ever been a moment in your life where you walked honestly, where you suffered patiently, where you sacrificed lovingly, where the world stood back and said, wow, I don't like him. I don't like her. I don't like what they believe. I don't like what they stand for. I don't like that church they go to. And I dead sure don't like their pastor. But they have just showed me who they are. And that light has so shined that I must glorify their Father, which is in heaven. Because Jesus said, this is what you and I must do. We must let our light so shine before men. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this passage, these passages, these captive heroes who give us an example of biblical Christianity. Lord, I pray you'd help us. I pray you'd help all of us to live lives of honesty, to walk honestly, to love sacrificially, to suffer patiently, and to live such a life that the world would look at it and say, that's a Christian. I don't like them, but that's a Christian. Lord, help us to live our lives in such a way that we would let our light so shine before men that they would see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. We love you. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.